Well, good morning, West Hills. My name is Cordell Schulten, and I'm so happy to be with you this morning. Um, back at my, this, this is our home church. This is my ordaining church. And when Pastor Will contacted me uh, earlier this summer, I was in Hermitage. That's what I like to say. I was in Hermitage at Labrie Fellowship in Yangyang, Korea, and I get this email, and Pastor Will says, hey, I'm going to be on vacation. Would you be able to uh, fill in and preach for me on August the 18th? And I thought, oh, well, I'll be back in town for a while. Sure. Uh, August 18th, that's a great date, and happy to do so. Um, Sandy and I, my wife and I, have been here since 2004 and all. Now, there are those in, in the congregation who have been here many, many, many years longer than us, but uh, the Lord brought us here in 2004, and it was in this congregation that uh, the Lord led uh, the congregation of West Hills to ordain me to ministry back in 2006. So I uh, actually dug up the documents to make sure that if there was any question about my ordination, you check out. You can check my wife Sandy. She has all the documents with her, uh, and and we know that it's valid because Bob Underwood prayed for me on my ordination with Pastor Gary and all the elders surrounding Sandy and me. And so we've been so thankful. That was 13 years ago. And since that time, the Lord uh, directed us and led us in many different ways. I served as the chaplain for the Christian Legal Society here in St. Louis for a couple of years, leading Bible studies for lawyers and judges and law students. And then I was called over to Korea, to Handong University, where I taught American law in a U.S. and international law program. And we were there for five years. Then the Lord brought us back here to St. Louis. And I was called to serve as the English ministry pastor at the Korean Presbyterian Church on Manchester Road in Kirkwood. Some of you may be familiar with it. Served there for three years. And then most recently called to serve once again in a teaching role at Heritage Christian Academy in Fenton, Missouri. The cool thing about that is I was literally called to that role by a former student of mine, a student that I had taught 40 years ago whose son and daughter were now students at Heritage. And so when I got the email from Wendy Inky saying, is there any way possible that you could come and, and help us? We lost a couple of teachers. It's like, this sounds like a call. Uh, and so I've been thankful now continuing to, to serve in that teaching role at Heritage Christian Academy. So uh, that gave me the opportunity to spend the, the summer months, uh, about eight weeks, serving with Labrie Fellowship in Korea. I'd gotten to know the folks there during my years and at Handong, took students up every semester. And uh, so I had uh, agreed to, to go and serve them, and then the contract with Heritage came along, and I thought, oh no, what if the school needs me in the summertime? 
So I let them know, and they said, oh, no, no, that's great. We know Labrie Fellowship. We know Francis and Edith Schaefer, who established Labrie Fellowship back in 1955 in Switzerland. And now Labrie Fellowships have spread throughout all the world. And one wonderful community is in Korea. And so I had the opportunity to go there. So I'm responding to the email from Pastor Will. The 18th would be wonderful. But I had forgotten that I had already promised my lovely wife of nearly 41 years. <laughs> I'd already promised Sandy that I would go with her on something she loves to do. The Moonlight Ramble. <laughs> Last night. And Steve and his wife were there too. And all, and thankfully they moved the start date, the start time up to 10 p.m. So we didn't have to wait until midnight to get onto the streets of downtown St. Louis. Uh, but uh, we we were rambling around with about I don't know, Steve, how many? There were a lot of people riding bicycles last night. Uh, anyhow, so we had a great time. Sorry. So I'm very thankful, very thankful to be here. Pastor Will asked me to uh, continue the study in the gospel of Mark, and we are in Mark chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at three particular parables uh, this morning. In Mark chapter 4, we're going to look at parables that present paradoxes, a paradox. A paradox are two things that are seemingly, logically inconsistent A paradox, two things that just don't fit together. But actually, the paradox reveals to us a deeper truth. And Jesus used these three parables to teach his disciples, to teach you and me today about what the kingdom of God is like. So we're going to look together this morning to Mark chapter 4. Oh, by the way, I move around a lot. So I hope that's not distracting. I'm going to read from the screen so that I'm reading the same thing you're reading. Okay, let's look. Oh, I think we, as a tradition, as a, as a practice here at West Hills, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Reading from Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. And the scripture says, And he, that's Jesus, said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure that you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. And to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as a man who scattered seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain of ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said... 
with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is grown, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them. And as they were able, as they were able to hear it, and he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we continue in your presence this morning. We thank you, O Lord, that each time we pray, we confess that you exist. You are here with us. We live and breathe in your presence. And Lord, we also confess, just as we've sung, we need you. We need you. So now teach us, show us by your word what you would have us to understand, to obey, as we would seek to follow on after you. Lord, we want to know you, Lord Jesus. We want to come near you. We want to be your faithful followers. We want to live lives that are according to your purpose, lives that count, lives that matter for your honor, for your glory, and in the service of others. So now we look to you. We wait upon you, Lord Jesus. We long for that day when we will see you face to face. And so we continue to pray. Come. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Please be seated. So parables are a little bit like riddles. Do you like riddles? you like riddles? Riddles? Sometimes? Okay. Well, I'm going to ask all of you who are big-time Hobbit fans, you Tolkien enthusiasts in the audience, please hold your tongue. <laughs> because you know the answers to these riddles. I already tested it out on one earlier today. Do you know, you know the answers to these riddles? Here's the first riddle. Parables are like riddles. Okay. Alive without breath, as cold as death, never thirsty, ever drinking, all in mail, never clinking. That is a... You don't have to hold it. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to stand and deliver. Just speak it out. It's a fish. That's a fish. And all the Hobbit fans go, you know, didn't you see that? All right, here's another one. It's a little tougher. Voiceless, it cries. Wingless, flutters. Toothless, bites. Mouthless, mutters. It is the wind. Very good, very good. I heard it over here. Oh, I should have prizes. <sighs> I forgot my prizes this morning. Normally when I do this in class, I teach middle school and high school. And uh, you know, normally when I do this in class, I have some sort of prizes in my pockets and toss them around. And I'll, Okay, another one. Here's another one. Do you know this one? This, I think this is a tough one. This thing all things devours, birds, beasts, trees, flowers, 
gnaws iron, bites steel, grinds hard stones to meal, slays king, ruins town, and beats mountain down. It is, there it is, time. Time is the thing all things devour. Okay, and the most famous famous Hobbit riddle of all, if you were missing those first three, I think you'll get this one, or at least you'll enjoy it. You'll enjoy it. A box without hinges, key, or lid, yet inside, golden treasure is hid. There it is. It's what my students from Handong say I am, an egg. Now, I know this is a little culturally insensitive, but I, I didn't make it up. My students said, Professor, you're an egg. You're white on the outside, but you're yellow on the inside. And, uh, so those are, those are riddles. We enjoy, we enjoy riddles. And in a way, Jesus' par- parables present a bit of a riddle. They engage the thinking. And remember what Pastor Will said uh, last week. Jesus used parables so that those to whom the kingdom of God and the truth of God was to be revealed would understand. But those to whom it was not would be left puzzled would be left puzzled. We need to confess our need for him to show us the way. Well, in the passage that we've read this morning, we have three parables, each of which presents a paradox. The first is the parable of the lamp, the lamp. And the paradox, it is hidden yet revealed. It is hidden yet revealed. The lamp comes in. Jesus says, well, we don't bring the lamp in to put it under a bushel or under the bed. We bring it in to put it on the lampstand. But the kingdom of God, Jesus says, is like a lamp, first hidden, then revealed. What does that mean? Well, I like to practice um, what I was taught way long time ago when I was first beginning my Bible studies. And the the principle is this, allow scripture to interpret scripture. You see, sometimes when we're, we're faced with a perplexing passage like the kingdom of God is like a lamp hidden yet revealed, we go, oh, what does that mean? And we go, oh, 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 I know, I know, I think it means this. And it could be a good idea. But then somebody over here goes, oh, no, 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 no. I think it means that. And we're going, what does it mean? Allow scripture to interpret scripture. Now, Jesus said in this passage that the thing in in Mark chapter 4, the next verse, uh, the verse right after he introduces the lamp says, Steve, there it is. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor anything secret except to come to light. Okay? So those things which are hidden are there to be made manifest. Those things which are done in secret are to be brought out to the light. Now, where do we find 
hidden yet revealed, secret yet the light in Scripture. Well, one place we find it is in the writings of the Apostle Paul. When he said in Ephesians, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace has been given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for all ages in God, who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Now he's writing that to the believers in Ephesus. He says that in the past there was a mystery. There was something that was hidden. He goes on to say what was hidden was this. In Christ is going to be one new man. No longer Jews or Gentiles, but all one. There will be no distinction. In fact, in Galatians, he went so far as to say, there's neither barbarian nor Scythian. There's neither slave nor free. So cultural identity is in Christ. Economic and social identity is in Christ. Oh, and by the way, in Galatians, he says, no longer male nor female. Our entire identity is in Christ. This is the mystery of God that is revealed. Christ, and in Colossians he said it again, Christ, and we sang it, we sang it, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery to be revealed. That God, the eternal God, the the transcendent God actually comes down and dwells with human beings, his creatures. In fact, God desired it so much. My favorite musician, I'm sorry, Scott. My favorite musician, Michael Card, and I'm dating myself. Some of you, some of you know Michael Card. Oh, and I was also going to say that the song this morning about I Need You, that made me think of Rich Mullins, uh, you know, Hold Me Jesus when I'm shaking like a leaf. And so that's me, Rich Mullins, Michael Card. Anyhow, Michael Card says God's greatest desire, God's greatest desire is, do you know? Do you know what God's greatest desire is? To be with you. To be with you. And that's the mystery that is revealed. Christ in you, Christ with you, you in Christ. So that when you have the opportunity to travel, whether it's to your next door neighbor, across town, across the state, the country, or across the ocean, and you meet another believer in Christ, you can simply say, the Christ in me greets the Christ in you. You are one in him. That's a reality. The mystery of God revealed. Now, there's another place where secret yet hidden is used, and it's in Christ's teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 3. Sometimes we're familiar, and we, and we remember these verses. Jesus was talking to his disciples about how their, how their righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he said to them, when you're, doing, uh, when you're practicing your spirituality, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be 
in secret. Now he says the same thing about prayer. And he says the same thing about fasting. That your fasting should be in secret. I remember when I was in my university days and I had some very devoted brothers and sisters and we were in Bible study together and sometimes after Bible study we would go out for a meal together, share a meal together. And so we're going around the table and saying, so what would you like? What, would you, what are you going to order? You know? And then one dear brother would fold his hands and say, sorry, I'm fasting. And it's like, okay, brother, oh, you might as well eat now because you've told everybody you're fasting and Jesus said you're supposed to fast in secret and all. That was my joke to him anyhow. But uh, we encouraged one another. We strengthened one another. But isn't this interesting? Jesus tells us to practice our, our faith, our prayers, our giving, our are fasting in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. But here's what I found, find even more interesting. One chapter before, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 5. And here's the same, the same parable, the same illustration. The lamp, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket or on a, but on a stand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What was hidden is to be revealed. What is in secret is to shine forth as a light. How do we understand that? Well, when I'm deeply, deeply perplexed, I turn to my favorite theologian, Terry. I turn to my, not Terry, but Terry knows my favorite theologian. My favorite theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I read Cost of Discipleship, where, where Bonhoeffer comments on these very passages. And he tells us that when we are living our life in and through Christ, it's a life of faith, and we depend upon him. And when a good work is done, Bonhoeffer says it's an unconscious act. That is, and Dallas Willard uh, teaches us this the same, in the same way. Uh, uh, he says that, that they are, in a sense, unconscious acts. They flow naturally out of the life of the follower of Christ. We don't have to... to necessarily form an intention, oh, I've got to do this good thing. But by God's grace and the reality of Christ living in you, it flows. And, and sometimes you don't even realize how you've encouraged your neighbor. You don't under, you don't, you're not consciously aware of how you've lifted the burden of a coworker simply because you were there and you listened to them and you're praying for them. They may not even know you're praying for them, but you are. And God is at work in their hearts and lives. And what is done in secret will be made manifest because it will be made manifest to God's glory. 
And it won't be something that says, oh man, you are really an amazing person. Well, it's nice to hear that. It's nice to be encouraged that way. But that's not why we do it. We do it because the reality of Christ's life is living in us and through us. And the Holy Spirit prompts us. And it becomes as natural as breathing. What is hidden will be revealed. Then he gives a second a second parable and this is about a seed sown. The seed sown in the ground and the paradox of this parable is this. The kingdom of God is like a seed sown dead yet alive. Dead yet alive. You see that seed and Sandy loves to garden. Our, our daughter, Hannah, loves to garden even more. She takes after my father, uh, who was my mom and dad, who were organic gardeners in central Missouri before anybody else heard of organic gardening. They were doing it back in the 60s, and uh, only people doing organic gardening at that time were way out in California. Uh, but my mom and dad were reading Dr. Rodale and, and going, going gangbusters on mulching and all kinds of things. My father was so way ahead of his time. Plant the seed in the ground. Dry, evidently, apparently dead seed in the ground. He sows the seed. Then he goes to sleep. He sleeps. He just sleeps. And what happened? It sprouts. It grows. A blade. Then an ear. I think he was describing either wheat or corn. Something like that. You know the progression. And Jesus says, the sower knows not how. The earth brings it forth of its own. It's the natural process of growth. What does it mean? Dead yet alive. Jesus used this very illustration to describe his own ministry. In John, he says to this, that uh, he reminds us, truly, truly, or amen, amen, verily, verily, this is the truth. I say to you that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth, and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, if it dies, it bears much fruit. The kingdom of God is like this, dead yet alive. We see that for mostly displayed in Christ himself. Everybody else around Jesus, even his own disciples, When Jesus said to them, I'm going to Jerusalem, and when I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be put on trial, I'm going to be put to death. Even Peter, one of the inner circle of disciples, said to Jesus, this can never be. I will stand for you. I will fight for you. I'll never let you be taken, put on trial, and be put to death. He didn't even understand it. What is this paradox? Dead yet alive. You see, it is only through death that life comes. 
And so Jesus also reminded us, and we are taught in the scriptures. What's our next passage there, Steve? Yes. When Jesus said uh, in Luke, he's talking about discipleship now. He's talking about if you're going to come after me, Jesus, that's the he here, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Do you know what Jesus had just said in Luke chapter 9, verse 22? If you've turned there, you might be able to look back up at that verse. In Luke chapter 9, verse 22, he told the disciples where he was going. In verse 23, he says, now if you want to follow me, this is what you need to do. Luke chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus said where he was going. This is one of the verses where Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, put on trial, and put to death. He told them what was ahead. What was the Father's purpose for his life? And now he says, you want to be my disciple? Want to come after me? Want to follow me where I'm going? I'm going to my death. So what, what do you need to do? By God's grace, you take up your cross. Now, your cross is not, my brothers, your cross is not your mother-in-law. That's the old ad, that's the old illustration. Oh, everybody's got their cross to bear, these difficulties and struggles of life. Yes, we do. We all do have difficulties and struggles in life. And by God's grace, we are sustained and enabled to do that. But that's not the cross that Jesus is talking about here. The cross for us is the same as it was for him. It is an instrument of death. It is where the disciple dies to him or herself. And more than that, it is where you die to yourself for others. So what does it mean? Dead yet alive. The kingdom of God is like a seed. Dead yet alive. Every day when we follow Christ, we say, Lord, Give me the grace to die to myself this day. Take up your cross daily. So that I might live for others. That I might live by your grace in you for others. Bonhoeffer also said that Jesus is the man for others. And that the church is only the church when it exists for others others. Now, those are some challenging words. He wrote them back in the middle of the 20th century, but they are as applicable and as binding upon us as, well, they explain to us what Jesus was saying in the scriptures. We're called to live for others. We need to reflect upon that and think about what that calls us to do in this place and then this time living responsibly within the concrete realities of life. Dead yet alive. Did I have another verse there, Steve? No, we move to the next point. Thank you. Okay. 
the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. A mustard seed. Those little bitty bitty, have you seen them? They're very, very tiny. When I was teaching my students at Handong, uh, they were all amazed that I came to Korea and I knew how to use chopsticks. Well, I had learned how to use chopsticks when I was 13 years old watching a television show that some of you in the back rows will remember, David Carradine's Kung Fu. Yeah, I learned, I learned how to catch a fly with chopsticks. So I would, I would engage my students in what I call the chopstick challenge. You know, what are you able to pick up with chopsticks? And we would start with some easy stuff like cashews and peanuts and all. But then we would move into the realm of grains of rice. Yeah. And by the way, Korean chopsticks are stainless steel. Uh, they are a little bit more challenging than the bamboo or wood chopsticks that sometimes you can just got lick and, and cheat and, <laughs> and pick up. Can't do that with stainless steel chopsticks. But the, the highest ranking chopstick master is the one who is able to pick up with their chopsticks a single, you know, mustard seed. You've reached mustard seed mastery. <laughs> Try it sometimes. Okay? The smallest, the smallest, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest seed planted in the garden, and yet when it grows, it is one of the largest plants. What do you mean, Jesus? The kingdom of God starts the smallest and yet emerges the largest. Well, he, he used this uh, imagery when he spoke to his disciples about their little faith. Their little faith. Well, oh, excuse me. And also, I'll get there in a moment. Thank you. First, he talked to them about even their numbers. You know, you know as Jesus' ministry progressed, he started out with big crowds. You know, up in Galilee, big crowds. You know, Sermon on the Mount up in Capernaum, big crowds, big crowds. But as his ministry progressed and as he started moving down from Galilee down to the south on his way through Judea to Jerusalem, the followers started to dwindle and dwindle and dwindle. He was saying very challenging things like, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. And they understood what that meant. They knew what crosses were all about. They knew what the Romans were doing with people on crosses. So the crowds began to dwindle. And by the time that Jesus was at the end of his ministry, when he was arrested and brought to trial, it says, Everyone deserted him, except only a few women stayed true. It was a very small group. And on that way, Jesus was saying to them, fear not, little flock. You're getting smaller and smaller, my little following. But fear not. 
It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You're just a small little group. But God is at work. And the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. In fact, he said, the kingdom is present among you. And then he spoke to them about their own faith. Their own faith. The disciples, you know, the disciples had gone out trying to do God's work. They'd gone out trying to cast out demons from those who were oppressed. But they were perplexed. The demons weren't obeying them. And Jesus said to them, For truly I say to you that if your faith, he had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Little faith, just a little faith. And what is Jesus talking about? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It doesn't depend upon the size or the quantity but it depends upon the very presence and promise of God that brings about the effect, that brings about the work, the growth, the development. You notice all of these three parables speak to growth and development. So uh, the scriptures go on to talk about what is small yet becomes little. In another place, uh, in Matthew, uh, Jesus says to them, for where just two or three of you are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. Seems very small. I mean, that's a small group, right? That's the smallest of a small group, two or three. But when you're gathered, and do you notice that that's in the passive voice? All my English teachers out there, where two or three of you are gathered. That is, the action is being done to you. You are being gathered in my name. It's God's work. And though it's small, though it's just a little bitty, the smallest of small groups, Christ is present. And it's the presence of Christ that brings about the work. It's God at work here and now. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so when we look to the revelation of John, what do we see? John said this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude. No one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb. And what are they doing? They're clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands. They're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. From the smallest to an innumerable multitude. That's the reality of God's work. And wonder of wonders, that work is taking place here and now. Christ invites us into that work. Every dimension of it, every dimension of the kingdom of God, though it is hidden, yet he will make it 
revealed, though it is dead. And And though you may even think, you look at your life in those times of self-examination. You look at your life and you may think, I'm just not going anywhere. I'm, I'm, my faith? What faith? And Jesus says to you, though it is dead, it's in death that life comes. It's God's work. Believe it today. Be a believer. Be believing. Now, now is the day of salvation. Behold, today is God's acceptable time. From death to life, from even the smallest. You may think, my my life, you don't know what I do. I do the most insignificant. I had... Uh, dinner with a, a brother not too long ago, and he said, my whole job is just repetition. It's just the same stuff over and over and over again. I'm just, it's not, it's, he, he didn't say it, but you could hear it coming out of his feeling. It's meaningless. I'm just, you know, it's what used to be called the rat race. In that, in, the, in, in that drudgery of life, even the smallest. Uh, I read a quote uh, this past week on Facebook. Facebook can be redeemed. I believe it can be redeemed. <laughs> there are some good quotes uh, that get circulated on Facebook. You know, find the good stuff. Promote the good stuff. Anyhow, this good, excellent quote came to me, and it's by, I think it was by William James. And and he said, act as if what you do is meaningful, is significant, because it is. It is. You're alive because of the grace of God. We live and breathe Because he has given us life. You can trust him wherever you are today. You are at the place where God is. And he is at work. And you can believe that. You can receive the reality of Christ in you. And know that though it is small, God's at work. And he is going to bring about the growth, the enlargement. That's the reality of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come. Your will be done every day. Let's pray. 